from Trojans Wire, part of the College Wire Network at USA Today. This is the Trojans Wired Podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Zemick and Ian Hext. Welcome to the latest edition of Trojans Wire, the podcast, which is an in-house production of Trojans Wire, which is part of the College Wire Network. You can get our podcasts at Google, Apple, Spotify, and the other places where you like to listen to our podcast. So um, Ian Hest and myself are back uh, in, in 2021. We recorded our show last week with uh, Chris Trevino of 247 Sports. We recorded it before Christmas. This is our first uh, fresh recording of 2022. Uh, so a lot to catch up on and a lot of uh, off-season activity for football in the transfer portal, coaching carousel, lots of movements, lots of stories, uh, Ian, for us to kick around. And I think we have to start with Caleb Williams and, of course, the, the, the new world of the transfer portal, which has profoundly changed the character of a college football offseason, added just so much more uh, richness, so many more plot points, so many more storylines. And so Caleb Williams, uh, one would think, is going to go to USC and join Lincoln Riley on the the pipeline from Oklahoma to Los Angeles. Uh, But of course, other programs are certainly making a run at Caleb Williams. I mean, even UCLA has talked to him, but you also have Texas A&M and Georgia. Uh, There's been some speculation about LSU where he was recruited uh, under under, uh, the Ed Orgeron uh, staff in Baton Rouge. And it's just fascinating to see so many high-profile programs going after Caleb Williams, knowing that if they land him, they get an instant upgrade at quarterback. And of course, with USC, the expectation that Caleb Williams will come to Los Angeles and play for Lincoln Riley, it's, it is that expectation is so pronounced precisely because Jackson Dart has transferred out. Now, if Jackson Dart was going to transfer out, one would think that he had either been told or he had learned that, you know, uh, Caleb Williams is coming in. One would think that that would be communicated by Lincoln Riley, that that Jackson Dart wouldn't just leave his position at, as USC quarterback just because. Uh, now, it, ha- it has to be said, though, that Graham Harrell leaving for West Virginia might have influenced Dart's thinking. But one has to also keep in mind that Graham Harrell was always going to leave. Like there was, there was a 0% chance he was going to stay on Lincoln Riley's staff. So one might wonder why would Jackson Dart wait until Graham Harrell announced? Why wouldn't he just en- enter the transfer portal right away if he always knew that Harrell was leaving and he always wanted to play for Harrell? Uh, that's why West Virginia is an obvious transfer portal destination uh, for Jackson Dart. But Ian, uh, you know, so I've been, you know, just kind of rehashed uh, th- these major transfer portal storylines circulating around Caleb Williams. You know, you're down in South Florida. You follow Miami. You're, you're following how Mario Cristobal 
uh, is getting that program off the ground, how he's launching his own new operation. Um, you know, is there a transfer uh, target you think he can land, you know, an especially big fish uh, that he might be able to get? Uh, what, you know, what are Miami insiders saying about what the, the Hurricanes can achieve in the transfer portal? And are there certain places that you don't want uh, Caleb Williams to go? Like, you know, I, if he goes to USC, that doesn't seem to have a massive effect on Miami in particular. But maybe if he goes to an SEC school, that might be like an early ding in terms of Miami missing out on on somebody in the portal going to another uh, program in that region of the country. And maybe that just undercuts uh, Cristobal's momentum a little bit. Uh, just what's your larger assessment of, uh, of the portal and, and the targets that you think uh, Miami can make a run at? Well, I, let, let, let's sort of take like a 10,000 foot approach to, to start with this. I think that, that it starts with, like we were talking with the coaching carousel, it starts with Caleb Williams and then it goes to Jackson Dart. And, and I think that USC is going to wind up being at the, the, the forefront of all of that that goes along with it. So if Caleb Williams is the guy for USC and Jackson Dart is the guy going out, then, then you're sort of treating this basically like we were treating the coaching carousel the whole time. Miami isn't really in the the um, spot for a quarterback right now. Uh, they have Tyler Van Dyke. Uh, I, I think that everybody was happy with him this year, uh, and he's young and he's got a couple years ahead of him. So uh, that doesn't really affect the the I guess the ACC as much as it would the Pac-12. I think that Caleb Williams, you know, is an interesting um, test study in in the transfer portal because. It is a player following a coach. And we've, you know, five, 10 years ago, we used to talk about how, oh, these guys are going there for the coach. How unfair is it that they're going there for the coach and not for the university? Well, Caleb Williams kind of defines that, does he not? Uh, so I think that he's an interesting, if it does wind up being USC in the end, and, and this winds up, you know, sort of being a, a, a rearranging of the deck chairs, then um, I think that we're really entering a new phase of sort of like college football free agency. I, I don't think that that's a bad thing necessarily. I actually personally enjoy it. I think that these kids should get to decide their futures. And if they find, you know, each one of us went to college and made decisions for whatever reasons on why we went to the university we attended. So I, I don't think that these you know, young men or, or women should be any different simply because they're good at sports. So his ability to do this is, you know, interesting. It's definitely one that we can talk about. Um, I don't think that Miami plays a role in that QB carousel, if we want to call it that. Um, you know, Jackson Dart, I think, is an interesting one because I think that he's – I actually like rate him really high. I think he's a really good quarterback. So, and Caleb Williams struggled at times last year. And really, if you look at Oklahoma's struggles, like he's at the forefront of a lot of them. So that that's a, a little tepid of a decision, I guess, in, in my regard. Um, maybe USC fans would disagree because they didn't have the greatest of seasons. Uh, but but I think that that's really the the cataclyst for starting this conversation. 
I mean, there's no question, Ian, that that free agency has come to college football and college sports, you know, basketball as well with the transfer portal. And the, the question it raises for me is, you know, what are, is it, is it going to transform the ability of programs to not only rebound if they've been struggling, but to rebound right away. And and, and in terms of bringing this conversation back to USC, one of the central questions surrounding the program and Lincoln Riley in 2022, not so much the long term, because in two or three years, it's definitely expected that USC will be back to the national championship standard and will make the college football playoff. But in 2022 specifically, there's a lot of skepticism and it's reasonable skepticism that Lincoln Riley can get this thing turned around in one year. The idea that he'll turn it around, pretty much everyone agrees he will. But can he do it in one year? That really is the the uncertain question. And so, you know, if if USC does land Caleb Williams, uh, in my mind, and I think most USC fans would agree, though not all of them, I think there's definitely a, a group that felt, hey, Jackson Dart gave us the best chance to win. And uh, that's a, certainly a reasonable view, given what we saw from Dart in a limited sample size in 2021. Uh, but most fans would say Caleb Williams is probably an upgrade from Jackson Dart. And if there are USC fans who are kind of split on this question, who are uncertain, I would make the point that Caleb Williams has one year in Lincoln Riley's offense. Jackson Dart doesn't. That's not a commentary in any way on Jackson Dart's quality, his ability, his ceiling. I think his ceiling is very high, but just the fact that Caleb Williams already knows Lincoln Riley's offense, you don't have to teach him anew how to run the offense. You're now just trying to develop his comfort level within that offense, teach him more concepts, broaden his knowledge base, deepen his uh, sense of how to see the game. Caleb Williams having that year under Lincoln Riley means that if he goes to USC, he'll be in year two of the Riley system. You're one at USC, but you're two of the Riley offense. That's an enormous leg up for USC, assuming Caleb Williams does join. And, and for those who haven't been following uh, the transfer portal very closely, um, Oklahoma receiver Mario Williams, not of the brother of Caleb, but nevertheless, an Oklahoma teammate has already committed to USC. That happened over the weekend. So it, it's been felt that if Mario Williams came to USC, Caleb Williams was also going to go to USC. Wherever Mario went, Caleb was likely to also go. Uh, it might be, come as a surprise to some that Mario committed first as opposed to Caleb or as opposed to both men uh, making their announcement concurrently. But nevertheless, with Mario Williams now at USC, it is expected that Caleb Williams uh, is also going to go to Los Angeles. And so if you bring Caleb Williams in, you know, you're, you're not getting an unproven quarterback. You're getting a, someone who already won. Well, he didn't win 10 games because Spencer Rattler started the 2021 season for Oklahoma, but Caleb Williams certainly kept Oklahoma in the big 12 title hunt. If Spencer Rattler had been the starter all 12 games, Oklahoma might not have won uh, 11 games uh, in, in uh, 2021. Uh, 10 under Lincoln Riley, Bob Stoops coached the team to the 11th win over Oregon in the Alamo Bowl. Uh, but Caleb Williams certainly increased Oklahoma's upside. And so if he can do that as a freshman, 
who was not the day one starter, uh, just imagine what he can do at USC. Now, of course, uh, the recruiting battles that we talked about with Chris Trevino, Ian, I mean, you, you and I were both part of that conversation. Uh, Chris Trevino, Trevino said, you know, that USC has some big targets on the offensive line. And that's really where this class can go from really good to great. Uh, if Lincoln Riley can close the sale on the offensive line uh, on, and with, with regard to the recruiting trail. So the idea that USC has enough upside or at least has the capacity to build enough upside to instantly contend for the college football playoff in one year, uh, I think that's a pretty credible assertion. I, th- I think that's really what the Caleb Williams story is all about, that assuming he does come to USC, I think that the, the, the dramatic nature of USC's improvement would be uh, uh, you know, enough to warrant uh, college football playoff consideration uh, in 2022. So I wanted to ask you about that because the way USC and Miami are approaching the transfer portal is sort of completely diametrically opposed. And it, it's sort of exactly what we were talking about in the coaching search with them is with, with Lincoln Riley, what he's doing is pulling a lot of those Oklahoma guys with him to go there as as they go and and really make it more of a, oh, I already know these guys situation. Miami, you had asked me when we started this conversation, you had asked me who they're looking at. Well, Henry Parrish, the running back from Auburn, has been very closely linked. Uh, Mahmoud, he went to Columbus High School, which is like royalty in, in Miami. Like, I mean, everybody from Columbus is, is, a, is a cane. Um, Mahmoud Diabate, the linebacker from Florida, has been talked about a lot. Um, Frank Ladson, the, the uh, wide receiver from Clemson, has been talked about. These are all kind of like lo- more like high school, middle school, growing up local guys uh, to the area, which is a little different than what USC is doing with the, oh, I'm going to pull the Oklahoma guys. I'm going to pull the guys that I know from the past. And so I'm, I'm curious as to ask what you think of which of those processes uh, you think is a better way to go, or is it just different strategy and, and how you think it is? Because I think it's really interesting to, to see the, the different approach in programs and, and what they sort of want their programs to look at. USC is trying to be more nationally based. Miami is trying to look more towards its local roots and think that it can bring back the, uh, the, the guys that left the backyard in a different sort of fashion. Well, you know, with USC, I, I think that USC really has one foot in each door, Ian. I think that there's an awareness of the need to lock down uh, the Southern California region uh, because, you know, Oregon under Mario Cristobal, now coaching your Miami Hurricanes, of course, Mario Cristobal was able to raid Southern California and bring it, bring talent up to Eugene in the Pacific Northwest. But that's because Clay Helton was a mediocre coach and a lazy recruiter. But now that you have Lincoln Riley, you know, just the Lincoln Riley name alone is going to keep elite Southern California based talent. Also Las Vegas based talent, uh, you know, from the top powerhouse high schools, uh, in those areas, it's going to keep that talent at USC. 
So USC is aware of the need to lock down Southern California. I think that it might, might seem as though USC is focusing on the national angle, but I think it's just because like the 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 Cal, the Southern California angle so much is just going to be already taken care of. And that doesn't mean that like Lincoln Riley can just show up and attract local recruits. I mean, he's going to put in the work. He already has put in the work. He's flipped uh, Oklahoma commits uh, based in Southern California to USC. So like he, he will put in the work, but a lot of the work has already been done for USC by the simple fact that Lincoln Riley is there. I hope, I hope listeners, I hope listeners appreciate that point that Lincoln Riley and his staff, they're going to do the work, but like they already have that natural territorial advantage, which means that they can then devote time to the national angle, to the transfer portal, uh, to these other pursuits uh, to, to give them a, tr- a two-pronged uh, recruiting and transfer portal strategy. I just want to jump in on that because like one, one of the most best examples I can give on that where Miami sort of went, I don't want to say wrong, but changed their identity has to do with Los Angeles and it has to do with Brad Kaya, who was at Chaminade, right, in, in, in LA. And they pulled him... They pulled his left tackle and they sort of went together to Miami. And I, and I've said this on the, on this podcast before, it was always not that they didn't, that Brad Kaya was not a good quarterback. It was that they didn't have the coat, the proper coaching. And that was always the mistake there. But in that time period, Miami considered itself a brand. It considered itself the national program, similar to kind of how Lincoln Riley has started this era. And what I have been impressed, I guess, with Mario about is, you know, and this this kind of goes without saying, but he's a local boy. Like he he like we've talked about before. He's the prodigal son. This was always the the one guy everybody here wanted to have, and so he he's sort of brought it back to grassroots local organization and and just being at the local high schools and being present in the community and speaking Spanish and do it like all of these little and going on the local radio shows and all that little stuff that like Miami's never really had one of those. They've always been this, this bigger than their boots sort of thing. And I guess I wonder with Lincoln Riley, if he's trying to mimic that, if he's trying to mimic that, Jimmy Johnson sort of style of I'm from Oklahoma and I can go anywhere and I can connect with anyone. And so no one is off the table. Whereas Mario is saying, no, 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 this backyard, we have a fence up and you don't get in here anymore. And it's just an interesting contrast in styles to me. Oh yeah, definitely. And of course, Mario Cristobal, you know, being a native son, uh, there's a cultural connection at Miami that, of course, Lincoln Riley does not have at USC. Like, so Mario Cristobal, he's a, he's a homeboy. He's he's from Miami. He's he he is a hurricane. Like, that's in his blood. It's it's la, la familia. Uh, so you know, it is in his best interest to have that localized approach. And he's also very talented and suited to pursue that kind of strategy in, in ways that, uh, that lots of other coaches could not certainly not the way Al Golden or uh, Randy Shannon or, 
uh, you know, other coaches uh, would go about their business. So Cristobal, for every obvious reason, should pursue a hyper-local strategy. And Lincoln Riley, you know, that's that's not who he is. He's not in that position. He's the cultural outsider, this Texas boy who coached Oklahoma, now making the trip uh, west, you know, kind of a manifest destiny thing <laughs> to, to Los Angeles. But of course, at Lincoln Riley, he recruited Southern California very heavily at Oklahoma. And as noted earlier, he was able to just flip those Southern California-based recruits back to USC. But of course, in the Big 12, what do you have to do? You have to recruit Texas. You have to go into Texas and get that prime high school talent. Lincoln Riley was obviously able to do that. Uh, you know, when Oklahoma's move to the SEC was announced, now, of course, that might have led Lincoln Riley to go to USC in the first place. But nevertheless, there's been an, an importance and an awareness of the need to stack up against the best in the SEC. Lincoln Riley, of course, has already coached in the Rose Bowl, a place where he is expected to lead USC many times over the next 10 years. But he coached in that Rose Bowl against Georgia, the reigning national champion now under Kirby Smart. So he, you know, he got a taste of up front in those three years against Georgia in the Rose Bowl, against Alabama and Nick Saban in the following season's Orange Bowl, and then against Joe Burrow and LSU in the Peach Bowl. Three straight years, he went up against the SEC in the playoff and got his and uh, almost beat Georgia, but got his doors blown off by Alabama in the 2018 season and by LSU in the 2019 season. So that certainly impressed upon Lincoln Riley the need to find guys in the South as well as Texas as well as Southern California, if we're going to go all the way and win the national championship, Lincoln Riley naturally comes to USC with national championship expectations. Obviously, the college, you have to get to the playoff before you can win the playoff. That's the first uh, main goal. But nevertheless, like Lincoln Riley's experiences as a head coach have led him to see how important it is to recruit nationally. Whereas I think Mario Cristobal's situation in Miami, you know, just knowing the erosion of that program. He sees it, he knows it, he feels it in his gut like it's a source of pain for him since he won a national title there as a player. Uh, it, you know, Mario Cristobal's experiences naturally lead him toward his focus, just as Lincoln Riley's experiences lead him toward his own particular uh, way of being. I think it flows very naturally from the lived experiences of both men. I agree with you, but that that sort of leads me to where where I wanted to take this further is, uh, you know, there, there's been reporting with uh, from from, you know, people in sports biz media that Miami boosters have uh, donated $10 million to uh, NIL name, image and likeness to basically pay players uh, th this upcoming season. And I wonder, I, I mentioned this to you before, but I'm curious to get your take again as to how Hollywood and the Rose Bowl and, you know, the, the parade and being in L.A., how much of that should, you know, when we talk about Lincoln Riley trying to recruit nationally instead of locally, how much does that those bright lights, how much does that become a pull for him? And how much should he use it? How comfortable do you think the fans are with that becoming, you know, the the thing that, that USC might wind up being known for? We went through it with the pay-for-play scandal, the Pell Grant scandal back in the 90s. 
down here. Um, now it's legal. So how much comfortability is, is the fan base with it? And how much do you think that they should lean on that natural advantage that they're going to have, especially, like you said, considering Texas and Oklahoma are about to head to the SEC, the SEC is just going to be its big behemoth. And now the Pac-12 is teaming up with these other conferences to sort of make a new alliance so that they can remain important on a media standpoint. And so how much does USC need to position itself as creating these Hollywood stars so that they can pull in the best possible recruits? Furthermore, and this is a secondary question after that, but the secondary question is how much does UCLA play into that as well? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about UCLA because there's something to talk about with Chip Kelly, uh, and I'll get to that in a bit. But uh, I think the, the general response to your question about, uh, you know, selling Los Angeles, selling the bright lights, selling the, the personal opportunities that are there for players in L.A., I think it naturally flows with and from the fact that Lincoln Riley is a natural fit for Los Angeles. Now, let's let's preface this by saying that, you know, Pete Carroll who succeeded wildly at USC in Los Angeles. He didn't have a, a, a glamorous offense. You know, it was a, a tra pretty traditional USC offense that stylistically was kind of the natural successor to what John McKay and John Robinson did. I mean, USC and Pete Carroll loved to run the ball, but what matters is that they had the horses there to do it. They had Reggie Bush. They had Lendale White. Uh, they had an elite offensive line. So they, they had the talent in place to simply run run a scheme which enabled them to, you know, just dump truck the opposition. Um, but, you know, it was establishing the culture, establishing an attractive place to play, uh, which made that Pete Carroll era took off. And again, Pete Carroll's infectious optimism was that sunny, bright, forward-thinking energy that, that Angelinos love. So Lincoln Riley, he, he has positive energy too, more youthful than, than Pete Carroll was. But the thing with Lincoln Riley is, you know, you're getting a, a sexy, lots of sizzle to go along with the stake kind of offense. You know, you're getting elite scheming, uh, elite innovation and, and creativity. Getting that is going to be the natural selling point, not just for recruits, but also for the fan base. You know, let's say USC had hired a much less impressive X and O uh, head coach. You know, maybe not, uh, you know, a rock star personality, but also, you know, without uh, the kind of offense that would naturally entice players to come to Los Angeles. I think the fact that Lincoln Riley has developed Baker Mayfield, he's developed Kyler Murray, he's developed Jalen Hurts, quarterbacks and skill players. You, know, you also you look at C.D. Lamb as a receiver. You look at the skill players and the quarterbacks that Lincoln Riley has developed, and kids are going to see, hey, if I play for Lincoln Riley in college, I'm going to go to the NFL. I'm going to be a first-round pick. I'm going to be a top-50 pick. You know, I'm going to be set. Uh, this, is, this is the right path uh, for my pro career. So, you know, when, when Clay Helton was at USC, the bright lights of Los Angeles weren't really that much of a selling point because who cares if you're going to Los Angeles – if you're not going to be developed into an NFL level player, if you're not going to have your potential maximized. And so the bright lights, they, they do exist kind of on their own. Like 
you know, Clay Helton uh, didn't do great, but like when he brought in Dante Williams, you know, a gifted recruiter, you did see USC's recruiting improve. So even with a mediocre to bad head coach, USC was still getting, you know, a, uh, one of the two best classes in the Pac-12 most years, not as good as Oregon, but still top two. So to that extent, the, the bright lights of Los Angeles are always going to be there as a recruiting magnet. But the real key is having a coach who in some way, you know, can ignite and unlock the USC program, who can tap into the magic of Los Angeles and instantly make it come alive. So Pete Carroll did it with his his optimistic competitive culture. Lincoln Riley does it with his ability to sell NFL player development in a sexy and innovative offense. So if you don't have those outside ingredients, you don't maximize the potential of those bright lights in Los Angeles. Now, UCLA, let's tackle that piece. Trojan fans, you know, they got razzed by UCLA co-workers in offices throughout Los Angeles over the past several years. UCLA fans were saying, oh, how great it is that USC kept Clay Helton for another year. Man, what a wise choice by the Trojans. They're being patient with Clay Helton. They should. He's just about to turn the corner. And they would just razz and razz and, and rib and poke their USC co-workers in Los Angeles offices to no end, celebrating that USC had retained Clay Helton for another year and another year. And now USC fans get to, to live on the right side of that divide. They get to rib UCLA fans, their UCLA co-workers, the neighbors and friends that the Bruins have doubled down and have, have gone back to the well with Chip Kelly. I mean, that, it's great news for USC. You, you think of all the coaches that you, UCLA could bring in uh, for a fresh start. You think about Matt Campbell. You think about Dave Aranda. You think about the coaches that UCLA or USC has just, you know, considered or pursued uh, in, in its own coaching search. You look at the coaching upgrades that have occurred elsewhere in the Pac-12, Washington with Kalen DeBoer, for instance, uh, as a representative example. Um, Jake Dickert looks like a good head coach at Washington State, but USC, UCLA, excuse me, is standing pat with Chip Kelly. Um, USC fans have to be very happy, and, and I think that in terms of any recruiting battles that you it's this this is supposed to be USC's town now you know since UCLA did not think that a change uh, was necessary or warranted the big question for Chip Kelly now that he's been retained now that he's inked a new deal with the Bruins is who's he going to hire as his defensive coordinator Jerry Asinaro, uh the embattled defensive coordinator whom you know Chip should have fired at the end of the regular season six weeks ago. Uh, he only they they finally parted earlier this week, and that was the signal that you know the negotiations had finally reached the point where, if Chip Kelly was going to stay on, he had to divorce as an arrow uh, at UCLA. So if Chip Kelly can find an upgrade, you know, then then maybe there's still hope for UCLA. But who wants to be Chip Kelly's defensive coordinator now that Lincoln Riley's at USC? Like that that just became a, a lot less attractive and one wonders what if chip kelly had fired his defensive coordinator in like mid-november before usc had hired riley you know if chip kelly had done that maybe he's able to hire a guy uh who who would have come to ucla you know not yet knowing that lincoln riley was coming he might have been able to get uh somebody you know with a much bigger profile uh in the marketplace but uh right now if you know who would want to join 
this very tenuous situation at UCLA with Chip Kelly, a guy who has not figured out the defensive side of the ball, who hasn't yet won nine games in a regular season, hasn't won a division title, hasn't done anything to take advantage of the Clay Helton era and USC's weakness. Why would you want to join Chip Kelly now, knowing that you know if you don't do something special in the next two years, I think Chip Kelly basically is in a situation where he now has two years. I mean, it's a four-year deal. I think he's going to get at least two years of that deal. If you don't do something special in two years, Chip Kelly is going to be gone, which means that you, as a prospective new defensive coordinator, you're going to be looking for a job if you don't thread the needle and max out in two years. And you look at 2022, uh, you know, if, if you don't get USC now, you're probably not going to get the Trojans in 2023. And you have Utah, uh, you know, Utah and USC are clearly the two best teams in the Pac-12 heading into 2022. So like if you're UCLA, your ceiling is already low. And so I don't know how Chip Kelly is going to attract an elite level defensive coordinator, bring him into Westwood uh, under these circumstances. I think that that UCLA has really boxed itself in, uh, has not played its cards right. I think USC is set to totally dominate the battle for Los Angeles over the next several years. Real fast, Matt, point blank, how much does the UCLA rivalry matter for UC- USC's success? And how much does like the northern four of Stanford, Cal, Oregon, Washington play into that? Well, you know, or- Oregon's been the, 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 the gold standard in the conference over the past few years because of how well Mario Cristobal has recruited. Um, but like in terms of the, just the UCLA rivalry, like it's extremely important for USC to own this rivalry because USC has the heritage and the tradition. This is not to say or imply that UCLA lacks tradition. UCLA does have a, a history of many successes, but those those successes are now receding more and more into the past. UCLA has not won a Pac-12 championship since 1998, so that's 23 years and counting. Um, USC is expected to dominate, and we saw during the Pete Carroll era when you make it, but of course, USC has not made the Pac-12 title game very often. Last time was uh, 2017, beating Stanford, and the, the only uh, previous time before for that was 2015, when Christian McCaffrey wiped away the Trojans in what was Clay Helton's first game as permanent USC head coach. Pat Hayden had made him permanent head coach just days before that game, so USC expects to dominate this rivalry, and that is exactly what seems to be likely to happen based on the chess moves and the administrative decisions we've seen over the past several weeks. So in the next 10 years, I, you know, I, I, I was watching Mario Cristobal to bring it back home on that. He, he had said, and a couple boosters had said, that the expectation – is to, at the very least, win the ACC Coastal seven of the next 10 years. Would you say that that's the expectation for USC in the Pac-12 South? Oh, I mean, uh, the USC should be winning the, the, the uh, Pac-12 South, you know, 95% of the time. So, like, you know, like every, every five out of six years, like maybe once in a blue moon, you st- maybe, maybe you have that, that bad cycle you get the weird bounce and another team goes 11 and one and you know, you, you go 10 and two and you barely miss out. Like that's going to be allowable just like once every 
five or six years, but like the USC's ownership of the South needs to be near total. That that has to be uh, the bar for for Lincoln Riley because like the Pac-12 South, no 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 disrespect intended to uh, any of USC's Pac-12 South rivals, including UCLA, including Utah. But if you have if you hire Lincoln Riley, you're expecting national titles. You're expecting college football playoff appearances. The Pac-12 South is just this small stepping stone uh, toward what 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 is supposed to be a high national standard uh, on an annual basis. Like if USC is not making Rose Bowls regularly, then then something's wrong because this is this is expected to be the Pete Carroll era 2.0 more or less at USC. Let's change our focus to basketball as we, you know, we're going to devote a little bit to basketball. Obviously, we wanted to focus on football on this podcast, but uh, to reset things, uh, USC is in need of a reset, interestingly enough. Uh, that word reset really does apply to the Trojans' current situation on the hardwood. They were 13-0 and uh, entering this past week, but they had to play a makeup game, a rescheduled game in Stanford, in Palo Alto, on a Tuesday afternoon, they had to fly to Berkeley to play Cal uh, on January 6th. They were supposed to play Stanford on Saturday, January 8th. That game was postponed due to COVID. So USC flew home from Berkeley. Then it had to fly back to the Bay Area on Monday the 10th to play that Tuesday afternoon game on the 11th. So really weird schedule. Lots of added plane flights. Not what you want. And of course, USC had a multi-week COVID pause over Christmas and New Year's, team wasn't able to practice, lost that rhythm, lost that conditioning, and we saw the effects of that over the past three games. Uh, beat Oregon State, but trailed the Beavers, who are not a very good team. They're uh, three and twelve on the season. Excuse me, three and thirteen on the season. USC trailed that three and thirteen team by ten points early in the second half before rallying to win, and then the Trojans lost at Stanford in that Tuesday game, and they got clobbered by Oregon. On Saturday. Now, Oregon's a really good team uh, today because the Ducks have finally snapped out of their funk. They've finally uh, attained the form many people expected them to have at the beginning of the season. So, you know, if Dana Altman struggles in December, he usually figures things out in January or early February. That's exactly what happened. Oregon didn't just win at USC, it won at UCLA as well. So, Oregon seems to be rounding into a really good team, which will give the Pac-12 not just three NCAA tournament bids, USC, UCLA, Arizona, but a fourth team. The Ducks do appear on course, assuming they maintain their trajectory. They will be a fourth at-large team for the Pac-12 in the NCAA tournament. But nevertheless, USC got bloodied twice, and it's just that lack of conditioning, that lack of rhythm. It has shown up more at the defensive end of the floor than on offense, because even when USC was winning games, uh, you know, this is not a dynamic three-point shooting team. It's not a very good free-throw shooting team. But what did USC do? It won with defense. It won with rebounding. It was holding opponents under 28% three-point shooting. That did not happen this past week. Stanford busted loose from three. Oregon busted loose from three. Uh, Oregon State even shot the ball pretty well from three-point range. So the Trojans, who have length, they have a lot of long-armed defenders, they're in a good position to play uh, the kind of defense that bothers opponents. But for what, because of the COVID pause, because of the disruptions on the schedule, they are out of rhythm and they don't have the offensive firepower or the deep bench to overcome 
uh, a bad defensive day at the office. So USC, its identity is based on effort and on defense. When those two things aren't there, the Trojans become a very mediocre team. We saw that the past week. So it's defense, defense, defense. That's the key this upcoming week on the mountain road swing to Colorado on Thursday and Utah on Saturday. So, so Ian, uh, I, I don't know what your opinions are on Pac-12 basketball, but um, you know, I know you're a very happy guy since Jim Laranaga has Miami back playing elite basketball, definitely headed for the NCAA tournament, beat Duke on the road. Um, you know, so you know, Andy Enfield, he went through a tough time. Uh, at USC before, you know, getting the ship turned around with the Trojans. So Larry Naga, you know, he had Miami in the NCAA tournament uh, in 2018 as a, as a high seed, but then uh, had a few difficult years, brought it back. I, I imagine you can, you can relate to what USC is going through in terms of going through rocky periods, but knowing that you have the right coach who's going to be able to get this thing back on track. I can. My my concern with USC, and and by the way, you know, let's let's give a round of applause to Oregon. They did something that hasn't been done since 1975: beat two top five teams on the road in the same week. That that hasn't been done since 1975. So, uh, kudos to Oregon for for the accomplishment that they did. My concern with USC is twofold. The first is stumbling out of the gates. When I watched that Oregon game, they were down 10 within the first like couple minutes of that game. And and they just didn't seem to realize that the ball had been tipped. And that's not the first time that I've seen that happen with them. So you mentioned defense and it's like almost as if they need to be aware right from the start. My second is the the mediocre team. They're 10-0 against quad three and four teams. They're 2-0 against the quad one teams, but they're 2-2 two two now against quad two teams. That, like, kind of average 8-9 matchup, 7-10 matchup, 6-11 matchup that you'll find in the NCAA tournament. So my concern with them is when they find these, you know, average sort of opponents – that aren't as talented as them, but they're going to play tougher than them. How are they reacting? And this little seesaw battle that they do. And I'm interested to see if you have confidence in, in that and if they can sort of figure this out because it, it seems like a lack of confidence against opponents that they probably should beat but aren't bad enough that you can afford to take casually. Yeah, I, I think the fact that Oregon uh, hammered USC, uh, you know, it was start to finish domination. I think that's kind of a reality check for USC in terms of, you know, what's this team's ceiling? You know, and the USC was number five in the AP poll, but, you know, there was an awareness that the schedule was indeed soft. Like USC had not risen to number five by beating, let's say, you know, Gonzaga or Auburn or Duke USC got to top five simply because it didn't lose a game. But yeah, as you mentioned, the Trojans non-con schedule was not particularly imposing. Now USC won every game it played. You're going to rise in the polls if you do that, but you know, USC had not landed some really big fish in terms of, uh, you know, some King size wins that are going to get major national attention. So losing to Oregon an Oregon team that's very talented had been underachieving, but is finally, you know, getting everything to fit together under Dana Altman. We've seen that so many times before. 
I think that, you know, it, the ceiling's much lower for this USC team than, than some might have previously thought. And that makes sense, right? You don't have Evan Mobley. You don't have a superstar generational talent. You know, he's the favorite for NBA Rookie of the Year. It makes sense that this USC team would not have this higher ceiling that last season's team had. But you know what? The expectation going into this year, like, we, were, we weren't expecting to make the Elite Eight again. It's get to the NCAA tournament, win a game. I think that's the, that is currently the annual expectation for USC. Get to the tournament, win a game. Because USC does not have a large number of NCAA tournament wins in its history, just establishing that as the current building block would be really good for Andy Anfield in this year and most years. And then if you can just establish that track record of getting to the NCAAs and at least winning one game, you're going to keep the pipeline flowing of talent. You're going to see people recognize that USC is a winning program. It's an NCAA tournament program. You know, Enfield has made more NCAA tournaments than any other USC coach ever, ever. Uh, that that's pretty crazy, but it shows that that you know he has done a good job of laying a foundation. He has a great recruiting class coming in, and of course the transfer portal enables Enfield to make key additions to the roster uh, to put all the pieces together. And so I think there is confidence that USC is can remain uh, a winning program. But I think that the idea of winning a Pac-12 championship this year, I think that's kind of gone out the window. Now maybe U- UCLA and Arizona have been badly overrated. UCLA did lose to Oregon as well as USC did. Arizona struggled with Utah. Maybe UCLA and Arizona are also overrated along with USC. I think that's USC's best hope to win the Pac-12. And you're going to see a four-team scramble in which Oregon, Arizona, UCLA, and USC beat each other up. And maybe USC can emerge from that scramble. But I think generally this was never going to be a number one or a number two seed in the NCAA tournament. Making the NCAAs with like a number six or number seven seed and winning one game this year, I think that's fine. I think that people might have thought, oh, maybe we can get like a three seed or a two if we keep winning. But that that winning parade was bound to, to run into some snags at some point. So USC fans really shouldn't be too discouraged. And when they step back and realize that we don't have Evan Mobley, we also don't have Taj Eady, who you know is that shooter USC really misses right now. Uh, to space the floor, um, it's okay that USC's uh, ceiling isn't as high in the sense that, you know, it makes sense. And this was never supposed to be an Elite Eight season. I think fans would be comfortable with, you know, winning one game in the NCAA tournament this year. But I don't think I don't think that it's as chicken little as you're making it. I, I mean, like I, you're, you weren't really making it, but I, I still think that that those cards are on the table. I still think that it's fine. I mean, what I see from Isaiah Mobley is is really great improvement that kid Goodwin is is a talent in the making uh I I think you probably need to win one of those Arizona UCLA games in order to really make a statement on the road but I I I like this team I don't think that is current it's it's tight-knit if it if it gets its act together if it doesn't you know, fall into a quick hole like it did against Stanford, like it did against Oregon. It's it's plenty capable of playing toe to toe with people. Uh, it, it's got great, great organized offense. I really enjoy that. It's a good defensive team, like you talked about earlier. It's long and athletic, and you know, touchline to touchline on it. 
so I, I think that they they could possibly make another good run. Let's not make the expectation that they should. It's that they could. But I don't I don't think that it's out of the question to think that this team could possibly, you know, make a deep run. Absolutely, Ian. And uh, on that note, uh, I know it's a little bit abrupt, but uh, I have another time commitment coming up. So we're going to wrap it up here. And, and, but I do think that that's a that's a very accurate assessment that you, you hope for this the really high ceiling, but you're fine with where you are, not in terms of complacency, but in terms of noting that, hey, we're still 14 and two. We've still put in a lot of good work. That's that's the, the, the optimistic and, and yet grounded note on which to close this podcast. So for producer Ian Hest, this is Matt Zemek signing off and we'll see you next week on the next edition of Trojans Wire.